Should I have a little slurp before we get started, JM? You know, with wow. my coffee. That's a, that's a saucy open, my friend. <laughs> have a little slurp before we get started. Good morning. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the What's Your Baseline podcast. In this show, we talk about our experiences and lessons learned in enterprise architecture and business process management. What's Your Baseline is designed to be for everyone. Newbies who are just getting started with these topics, organizations who want to improve their EA and BPM groups and the value they get from it, as well as practitioners who want to get a different perspective and care about the discipline. Each episode will tackle different key topics, providing context, background, best practices, and stories from the road, inviting you to learn from our challenges and successes, and demonstrating key tools to help you set up your practice and get the most out of it. I'm your host, Roland Wold, and I'm joined today by my co-host, J.M. Erlinson. Hey, J.M., how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Roland. I think we've been talking about the weather all this time, but honestly, it's been so many months of cold and wet that to look outside at a beautiful sunshine, ah, I, I got to say, it's it's the perfect day for me. How are you doing? I'm doing fine because uh, here in Virginia, the, the summer has arrived. You know, we had, we had two weeks uh, two weeks ago where it was really raining all day and now it's sunshine and it's semi-warm, you know, so it gets up to the 80s. So I do not want to complain and I'm not looking forward to July and August when the humidity kicks in. So, but hey, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. It's the beautiful you say, day. You say summer. the 80s, but you're, but you're talking about Fahrenheit with two people on the call today who oh. are much more used to Celsius. <laughs> That's true. And actually, I, sh I should know better, you know, living in Germany for 40 years, you know. That's true. That's but, true. You know, th this is this is how people can adapt, you know. So I, I have my I have my little digital twin of me, you know, one lives in Celsius and one lives in Fahrenheit. And um now I try to get the bridge to our new guest and I, I don't have any idea. So <laughs> without, right. without further ado, we're happy to have John Hill on the call today, who dials in from sunny London. As I heard, summer has arrived for this year on a Tuesday morning. Um Welcome, and we're going to talk about simulation, but I'm pretty sure we will talk more about that in the next hour-ish or so. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me, guys. And uh, yeah, you know, you can't have a Brit on the call, I guess, without um, some small talk about the weather. So uh, <laughs> appreciate you. Well, I feel at home. Yeah. home already here. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I'm. I think I think we're pulling about 18 degrees Celsius here. So I, someone will have to do the really? Fahrenheit conversion for me, but um. That's in the high 60s. Balmy. <laughs> 72 is, is 21 degrees Celsius. That's what people have on their heating, you know, or air conditioning in summer. Shorts and t-shirt weather for me, yeah. Yeah, well, for us, we, we, we could have also brought a couple of pints and that would have made it nice. We can, I mean, I feel like, Roland, at some point in time, we got to go over and visit John and a lot of the friends. We've interviewed a couple of folks over, over across the pond. Yeah. It'd be fantastic to go set up our mics in a, in a pub and just have a pint and talk process and architecture. I think that'd be a great, what's your baseline live? Ooh, ooh. <laughs> How do we charge the travel cost now? Do we have oh, an account? Uh, sure. Yeah, we can, we can make that work. <laughs> no, but in, until then, John, we, we, we're going to see you virtually over over the cameras. I mean, as, as everything we do, we're really excited to get a chance to talk to folks from all over the world who come from different perspectives. But your perspective and, and your background was really, really, really exciting to us. We had a good chance, get a chance to meet you and, and talk through sort of what you do. But before we get into your topic, tell us a little bit about you. So. Who are you? Why are you here? What are your experiences and, and background that brings you onto the show and brings you the topic of process simulation? Yeah, so uh, so my name's John. I'm founder and CEO of Silico. Um, Silico is a is a process simulation platform. We're going to talk a lot more about that, I'm sure, as the as the episode progresses. Um, I, I come from a very different world. I don't come from the world of processes and architecture. Um, originally, uh, after leaving, you know, university and you know, doing all my education, I, uh, I originally was a was a public sector economist. That was my first life. Um, I worked in a you know five hundred year old building with uh, marble floors and oil paintings on the walls, um, and it was really there that I I got interested in simulation um, from the perspective mm. of analyzing the financial system mathematically. Thinking about complex systems, thinking about how do we make so how do we engineer social systems to make them more effective, behave how we want them to, 
Um, I always like to say, you know, do more of good things and less of bad things, basically. Um, that was an interest that progressed into sort of some published academic work in interdisciplinary fields around sort of maths and physics and, and economics and the intersection of all those things. Um, and then out into the world of computer science, I left economics behind when I studied computer science in London um, and then found early stage companies originally as an employee in a, in a simulation company. And then in 2019, founded Silico uh, with my co-founder, Chris, um, with a vision of, of building a kind of a next generation simulation platform. Oh, that's, hmm. that's a very interesting topic. But before we get to this, uh, we, we want our listeners to know a little bit more about the person that we have on the show. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, who you are as a person? You know, what are your hobbies, your interests, your, your bucket yeah. list item to put a little morbid uh, twist on this? <laughs> yeah, so, so actually, you know, the, the company is based in London. So you were right on the London front, but I actually live now out in the countryside. So I live just in a, in a, in a small village, um, very oldie worldy village just outside Oxford. Um, I have a two and a half year old. I have a, a dog and a cat um, and, a, and, a, and a young company. So those things keep me busy growing those. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an aspiring cyclist. Um, I do a bit of running. I like to try and get out and about and uh, try and keep myself in shape or at least manage the decline um, these days. <laughs> You're in good shape. Uh, Take it from the guy who's who's a day or two older than you are. You're doing good. <laughs> wow. Well, actually, I have a question for you about before we before we go any any further. You know, we we talked to a couple of CEOs um, of of companies, and what's fascinating to me is the story about how you get there. Right. Mm. I know we have a lot of people who listen to the show who are aspiring leaders, uh, and founding a company and becoming a CEO feels like a heavy lift. Talk to me about, first and foremost, the decision, the hard decision, I'm assuming, to strike out on your own and to make something brand new. And what sort of upskilling did you have to do? What sort of you know, adaptation of your lifestyle did you have to make to make CEO work? Yeah, huge transition. Um, you know, I think most... Um, most um most ceos most most entrepreneurs sort of end up here by accident and and i'm sort of i'm not unique in that sort of being my story as well you know i was i was at another simu a simulation startup as an employee um love the space love the technology um love the love the vision for what this 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 technology could be um and when it was the right time to leave that company i looked around and there wasn't anything in the world that That grabbed me. There wasn't somewhere I wanted to go and work. Um, and I'd met Chris, my co-founder, and we shared a worldview. We sort of shared this vision. And so rather than going kind of job hunting and, and looking around for what next to do, we, we started meeting in pubs and cafes across London, bouncing ideas around for what, what to do next. Everything from there is sort of, uh, you know, a, a, a snowball starting to roll downhill. You know, we started as two guys, no, no money, no investors, um, no, no experience of how to do those things. Started building some technology, which is the right thing to do from day one. Um, and then, you know, gradually along the way, you learn these things. You, you build a network. You understand how to, how to raise capital for your business. You understand how to, build that technology, how to, how to, you know, attract talent to want to come and work uh -huh. with you and share your vision. You learn a lot about storytelling and about how powerful that is, how, how compelling, you know, you know, what we're all really looking for is something that we can believe in, right? We want to work on something that's, that's bold and aspirational and, 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 and feels like a good use of our time here. Um, so, so I, you know, learn a lot about how to do those things. And then along the way, you, You know, the, the, the story unfolds. It's just a continued ability to kind of put yourself in, in new situations and have an attitude of, I'll just figure that out. I'll just learn how I, I know where I want to get to. I know what's on the other side and I'll, I'll figure out the bit in between. I'll navigate the obstacles kind of as they come up. And now you're talking to those two guys on the other side of the pond, you know, in that little podcast, which we're happy to have you as a guest, as I said before. But let's go to the to the topic. And and I'm pretty sure that our audience who are architecture and business process management professionals have heard about simulation. But in all seriousness, and I'm, I'm doing this gig for over 25 years now, I haven't seen it applied a lot 
in reality. So maybe as a as a baseline, um, let's start with a definition. You know, what is business process simulation? What what is the the specialty that you see with Silico maybe compared to others? Yeah, so you know, I think the the art of simulation. You know, the goal is to create a a model, a mathematical representation of a system which which behaves approximately as the real system behaves. You know, that that's a pretty broad definition. Um, I think you know, an analogy is probably the most useful way to explain it in this world, in the world of business processes. Simulation is widely used, has been widely used on physical systems. It's, it's been used in engineering and. And the sort of the hard sciences for for a very long time, you know, going back to early work on atomic systems and and lots of work in aerospace and places like that. And it's it's taking that idea, you know, having a mathematical model of a of a real world physical system, taking that analogy and translating it one for one to a non physical system, a business process, the entities that interact inside a business and the information they exchange in the course of doing business. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, obviously, the question is, um, how do you how do you make that happen? So, uh, I would assume you take a process model as the representation of the process, and then what? Yeah, so it's always explain to people right to build a simulation of anything. You need to know two things. You need to know what's the structure of the system you're trying to simulate. So, how does it fit together? What affects what? You know, what are the, the causal dependencies to get a bit more technical in that system? Mm-hmm. And then we need to know some of the numbers that flow through that through that system. So we need to know the key parameters that determine how that system changes through time. And what's wonderful and what we found in the world of processes is, as you, as you, just as you said, right, we, we know those structures. We have these process models already. We kind of have the hard part. So what we need to add to those are these key parameters and the key mathematics that describes how those processes change through time or, or how the things flowing through those processes change yeah, through so, time. So, so we're talking about whatever frequencies, how often does this happen and times, like how long does it take, you know, and when you come to a to a branching situation where how many go left and how many go right, that type of stuff, right? Exactly. All of mm-hmm. those things. Um, a lot of those are, are things that are well known in organizations. You know, we, we I think particularly with the, with the advent of process mining in particular, we have lots of very rich information that we can that's very amenable to this this next step right to turning these things into simulations um, and there might be some other you know useful pieces of information we can add into those process structures and enrich them in various ways which then let us answer a really wide range of very interesting questions and and that's really you know what simulations all about is answering questions about the future about what happens if i change something today yeah i i think that this is actually like a fantastic time to have started this company, obviously not coincidentally, because I I come from the world of manufacturing and manufacturing simulation, as you mentioned, has been around for a long time. But, you know, particularly when we have less measurement tools, like less sort of views into the process, it's been often a tool of course analysis at very best or best guesses and hoping that your random variability leads to an average that's relatively correct because you're using things like time and motion studies or using very small sample sizes that you intend to be indicative of a very large actual execution that sometimes works and that sometimes does not work. You mentioned process mining. Uh, Tell me about how you see process mining as a part of the ecosystem. And in particular, when you were looking to found this company, like what factor of process mining in their existence and its popularization did that play into the way your company was built from the ground up? Yeah, you know, I think it, it all comes back to, you know, looking for those two things, right? You know, as someone who's built simulations of lots of different systems, you know, where in organizations do people have really good knowledge of these structures? Right. And, and, and the whole world of processes is, is, all, is all about that. It's all about do we understand the, the model, the fundamental model, how things fit together? And then, you know, what's gone on in sort of data driven decision making and data and analytics and organizations just being a lot more data literate, frankly, means that we're moving from a world of people, you know, looking at having descriptive and qualitative descriptions of these, these processes. 
into a world where I think people want to be quantitative first. Which is very interesting. And, and we spoke on this podcast many, many times about this, <clears throat> that this is a, a big shift uh, that we see in our professional and our discipline here. But what is your experience with the acceptance of that? Is that a, a young kids thing or is that whatever, all through all ages, all whatever groups of people that you have? Or do you have the stubborn old guys who just say, nah, we've always done it this way, go away. What, what, is, the, what is your experience in accepting things like data-driven uh, simulation? Yeah, I think I think inevitably when you when you bring a new technology to market, you bring a, a new technology to a group of people who've been doing something for a for a long period of time in a certain way. There's always going to be a fraction of those people who don't want to change, or a fraction of people who want to continue with the status quo. But there are always these early adopters, you know, these these magical people that, as an entrepreneur, you're looking to mm -hmm. speak to and you're looking to find early in your journey, who want to do this. You know, one of our our very first customers and, and a, a very critical. Um, sort of moment in our history in terms of informing sort of the value proposition of the platform and a lot of the product decisions we we made was explicitly looking for you know a, a tool to help him build a quantitative in his words digital twin of a process he'd done bpmn he'd done process mining he, he felt like he already had a very good handle on qualitatively what it looked like how the process fitted together how it looked end to end But he wanted to move to that next step, right? He wanted to be able to provide more compelling evidence to people to help them make decisions. And they wanted numbers. They don't just want description yeah. and PowerPoint presentations and compelling stories. Um, they wanted hard facts and hard numbers. And when you go to time budget off from the CFO, that's the, that's the language that the CFO wants to hear. <laughs> I mean, I can I can only imagine that that leads to the sort of the question that is natural to come for a lot of people who are thinking about this is when do you know it's the right time to move into the realm of quantitative? Because there are a lot of people who are really struggling with this transition. And it's it's fortunate. It sounds fortunate that one of your first clients or maybe inevitable that one of your first clients was one who was trying to make that shift from the digital twin as a picture to the digital twin as a mathematical model. That's a big mental shift. Tell me about what your first baby steps are into that world. Yeah, so to, to you know, the way that we work with, with an organization, the, sort of the, the natural progression of that journey is where I think you have a process, you know, it doesn't need to be all of your processes in one go, right? This could be a single process in the organization where you already have that really good qualitative description of it. And probably you've, you've done something like process mining and you've done that sort of what I think is sort of that first logical step, which is we know the sort of target operating model. We know what, what this golden process looks like. We know what good looks like in the organization. And we're now pretty happy that we're conforming to that, right? We've done process mining. We've We've found out how we're executing against that that golden state process, and we've fixed lots of the problems that that throws up. That we, you know, where we're actually not executing as we thought we were. But now I've got a new question, which is, how do I change that process to drive optimal outcomes for the business, or how do I con how do I continuously monitor this process to ensure that it's performing how I expect it to? And that's that's the next that's the next realm. That's that's when you're into this new world of we need to look forward and we need to think quantitatively. So now I have so many questions and I don't know how to put them in the right sequence because <laughs> it, it goes more to the foundation of your product um, on this. So um, maybe I'd like to take a step back, John. Uh, simulation, as we all know, is, is nothing new, right? So the products have existed for the last 20, 30 years in different iterations. And I'm really curious when we start unpacking all the stuff that you just said and the implications that come in, how does that all work in silico? Because um, when I look back in the day, the way how simulations were done were basically just two types of simulations. You know, one was discrete event simulation where you basically brute forced every instance of the process through the machine and they were screaming and it was just pure number crunching on it. And then the, the other way was the Monte Carlo simulation where you basically calculate probabilities and it's much faster and 
at the end, it spits some KPIs out. Is is that the same approach that you currently use with Silico? Or uh, I heard you had that that term that you put the AI and the make in there. So maybe you have a little bit of enhancement uh, in your product. Yeah, look, I, I think there's two parts to this. So, so there's one is is what, what's the mathematics running under the hood in in Silico, right? And 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 the technical term for the type of maths that Silico uses is is a uh, something called system dynamics mm-hmm. um it's a it's a simulation methodology which is which is nice it's at the sort of right level of abstraction to think about answering the sorts of questions we're trying to answer um so system dynamics for the uninitiated you can think of as a, a description of how systems change through time it uses calculus which we obviously hide from you we make all this this very easy for you to do The analogy you'd get, you'd get if you did sort of system dynamics 101 at you know, university or, or something like that is you can think of it as a, a set of bathtubs that, that fill up and drain. So we mm-hmm. have these bathtubs all across our systems. We have taps that fill them up and we have you know, a plug hole which drains them through time. And you can think of processes in the same way, right? We have, if we think of a very simple one-step process, we have some things coming into that process each day cases or orders or um, purchase requisitions or whatever those things are. Um, and then we have a, a rate at which we're able to move them through that, that backlog or that queue, the moving through the, through the, out of the, drain them out of the bathtub. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the difference between those two things that determines how quickly we're able to move things through a system. We can stitch these together to create very long, complex sort of chains of how this water flows through the system. And that's effectively the, the type of maths that we're doing at, at Silico. It's really nice because it's very visual. So you don't see any algebra. You obviously don't see any calculus when you open Silico. What you see is um, what looks very much like a process, a process diagram. It, it looks just like a, a BPMN diagram. It's squares mm-hmm. and circles and shapes that connect to one another, which reflect that process description of how things change. And then each of those elements, each of the each of the nodes on that map are doing some maths. They're doing some of that mathematics for you. We're doing some of the calculus or we're adding two things together or we're multiplying something by a rate. And that's what's describing how everything across the system changes through time. So part one is that's the maths. That's that's actually kind of the engine of Silico. Mm-hmm. But I think as with any technology, it's, it's ultimately about how people use it, like how people use it to derive value from the system. So absolutely lots of people have done bits and pieces of simulation on, in, uh, and there's been a long history of this. What we're trying to build is an, is an end-to-end enterprise platform. So we can make getting data in and out of those simulations really easy. We build an interactive visualization layer. So you can do all that what-if analysis and all that experimentation and, and ask these questions sort of in real time on the fly. Um, and then there are a few quite quite whizzy and quite powerful things that we've built on top, which you know, when I look around at the landscape today and p- other people talking about process simulation, they don't have any of these capabilities. And, and these are really what unlocks a lot of the value for our business users. And you know, we, we can say more about that. Well, I, I wanted to talk specifically about that because when we think about simulation as, a, as an academic exercise, as a mathematical exercise, One of the things I feel like a lot of a lot of my clients, because I talk about simulation a lot as well, they get kind of get caught up on is is it's obvious that you should do or to some it's obvious you should do simulations right, to sort of use data as a guide or evidence as a guide for decision making. But the question comes back to like, what is it actually going to provide to you? So they ask very pointed questions. Predictive analysis is a big question. So is this going to help me to avoid risk? Big question that comes up. Um, it's, it's going to be, the other, another question is, is this going to help me future-proof or plan processes? So how, how do I use this as a part of my exercise of business planning? And the third is, how do, I, how do I use it to make actual decisions on architecture and process that will support my particular business goals? So it's how do I, how do I drive the value through this conversation? And I, I want to sort of focus on those those three things um, and and ask you how you see that and how you approach that problem. So the idea of risk avoidance, the idea of future proofing and, and uh, scale planning, and the and the idea of business value driving and 
and where to show that. And particularly when you look at AI as a driver, how much you are able to provide more than what's on the page back to those kind of people, what's necessary to become a value driver for an organization? Yeah, like all, all really good questions. Lots to lots to dive into there, right? So, um, you know, I, 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 we can talk about this in maybe in the context of a real example as well. Uh, Please, yeah. You know, I, I think um, what what you're trying to do obviously is is to get to the point where you have a, a representation of this process which generate numbers that you can believe in. That's that's the objective. That's the objective mm. to be able to do this predictive analysis. So what that means, and I think a rabbit hole a lot of people fall down in simulation is, is thinking of this as a, an exercise in predicting the future, um, which is you know, philosophically impossible. You know, there are, there are lots of constraints um, from information theory and things like that, that we know that we cannot predict the future. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to provide a best estimate of how this, these numbers will evolve into the future based on not how they've behaved in the past, that's the realm of statistics, but how they, how the process works mechanically. So if we know how many things come mm. into that process today, if we know how quickly we can, and how quickly we can process them with current resources, we, we can work out how many we will get out the other side. That's like a, you know, that's a, something that we can, we can ex- extract out essentially from the, the mechanics of how that process works. And what we're doing in Silico is, is doing that at larger scale, at, at single process level or end-to-end processes connected together level. We're, we're looking at the mechanics of how things work, how they fit together, not doing a statistical extrapolation exercise where we're getting into goodness of fit and, and these sorts of things that I think people get into. What we're trying to do is, is help people not only have a, a sense of where these numbers are going to go to in the future, which is about the, the realm of prediction and, of course, about planning. Also understand why they do so. So they, it's important. This is not a black box. This is not a pile of linear algebra, right? This is, this is my process. I can see it on a page just as I can see it if I, if I have a process map. And I can follow through, right, where are those orders moving through that process? What are my processing times? How much throughput? How much can I get through out of this process? And then I can generate the numbers I need to know. I'd like to take it a step back because the, the challenge that I've seen in the past was how do I feed the beast, right? How do I get those numbers? And, and uh, whatever, they, they were obviously when you talk to the lean folks or whatever, you have the guys with the stopwatch and, and all those type of things. Uh, I thought by now, when I was uh, young, I thought this was all fully automated and whatnot. And the reality is it isn't. But the question is, how do you approach this? So if a client comes to you and says, hey, I heard good things about you. I heard good things about your tool. I like to try it. What do I have to do? Yeah. Right. So what, what is the stuff that they have to prepare? Uh, what is the approach for your implementations and, and all these things? If you can shed a little bit of light in there, that would be awesome. Yeah. I can I'll tell you a little bit how, you know, how we work with clients is, is we, when, when they, when they come to us directly, um, we, we work with them. We'll, we'll do a four week exercise with, with a client. What we'll ask for on day, on day zero we count from zero. I'm a computer scientist. On day zero, we ask for the, this, the picture of the process, right? Preferably that this is going to be in, in, a, in a machine readable format. So um, if it's a BPMN um, model that you're going to want to turn into a simulation, if you can provide us a .BPMN file, mm-hmm. Silico can automatically generate the simulation structure. That's, that's kind of a click of a mouse. So we've fed information about the process structure. And then what we need to augment that with is these key parameters, the processing times, the, the people, frequencies, the volumes, all of yeah. these things, exactly that. So again, if you've done, if you've done process mining and, and you're, you, you know, we can hook this up to, to the outputs that come from your process mining platform, those then sit as data, those, those sort of aggregated metrics sit as data behind, silico, you know, behind the model in silico. And then we can reference into the simulation where all of those things fit. So basically taking that process structure, automatically turning it into the structure of the simulation. And those two things look very similar, unsurprisingly. And then we are feeding into it, feeding the beast, as you say. We're feeding in yeah. those parameters into the right parts of that. That's so how, how, do you, how do you put or how do you determine when working with your clients how good looks like? You know, because my process, you know, I'm cheap. 
could be the cheapest one. You know, JM is, is very impatient as a Canadian. You know, he, he wants to have the fastest one. You might think about, oh, yeah, give me the one that uses my, my resources the best, you know, my machines. And if I'm in a manufacturing scenario and, and those things, how do you put the reference in there? Is that something that uh, your clients will have to do outside of the tool? Or is it something you can bring in and, and tweak the simulation accordingly? Yeah. So, so when that, I mean, one of the really key things, and you know, there's a, obviously a few things I alluded to that, that we do in silico that you wouldn't do in another, you wouldn't be able to do in another sort of process simulation tool. One of the key things is these are completely extensible, these simulations. Mm-hmm. So we can add in additional structure, additional mathematics beyond what you've just got in the process today. So, so it, you know, and, and this all comes back to why we're doing the simulations. So, G- give me an example of that. What, what would those structures be? Yeah, a, t- a typical use case might be, let's say, you have an order management process. Mm-hmm. And we're really interested, as, as process people, we might be really interested in, you know, uh, delivery times and throughput rates and, and, and yeah. how that impacts. But what we really care about is what's the impact on customer satisfaction? What's the impact on cash flow? Those are the two things that, as a business, we really care about, you know, how, what, what this process is driving, the business outcomes it's driving. And so in Silico, we can do that. We can extend these process descriptions into the metrics that we care about. So it could be a, a cash flow model in an order process. If you're a manufacturer, you know, this could be an ESG score or some, or some carbon modeling on the end of that process. Mm-hmm. Suddenly you're connecting the world of processes to the world of the business outcomes that ultimately are what people care about. And the decisions mm-hmm. we're trying to take on the process are about driving better outcomes, right? That, that's really what we're getting at. Interesting. Yeah, I, I love it. Uh, you know, I think that's one of the things that we can get really lost in is simulation as an academic exercise. You know, when you connect it with goals, when you connect it with the KPIs that are driving either the top line of the organization or something that you might see at a CEO level, like these are the, these are the conversations they're having with the market. These are the things that they're being evaluated on. If you can, I mean, or the CIO level, like you, if you can connect those in to those high level goals, the, the exercise becomes way more tangible for your executive stakeholders so that it doesn't get viewed as a bunch of people doing calculus in a back room and telling you, ah, I see, we are going to fall apart at this point. Like, that's not going to be really helpful. That's only going to be, you know, it's only going to ever sit in its lane. What you want to do is you want an enterprise impact. And I, I think that's a perfect transition for us to take our first break. I know I can see you're ready to answer. And I, and I, I think we have an exciting uh, conversation to come after the break. But we're going to take a little bit of a moment for people to process this information. It's fa- fascinating so far. But <laughs> people need a little bit of a musical break to take a, a couple of seconds. In the meantime, they'll think about these questions. Um, and please... Be reflective, folks. What qualitative or quantitative analyses have you done on your processes? Be honest. Talk to yourself. You know, is this sort of qualitative or is this actually using real information? How did you approach that problem? What collateral did you bring to the table? What did you have? Did you form hypotheses? What were they? And what value did you ultimately get out of this exercise? We'll leave you for a brief moment and come back with more from the fascinating John Hill. Welcome back to the second part of our uh, podcast today. And uh, I like to shift the, the tone and I like to shift the topic a little bit away from, oh, what are the mechanics? How does it all work? I think we've covered that well enough in, in the first part. Um, one thing where, to be honest, I have an issue with is um, the concept of the digital twin, right? And, and John, I know that you're uh, putting that on your on your banners on that uh, and, and maybe it's <laughs> it's just because I think it's a marketing term you know but there might be a nugget of truth behind it but tell me a little bit about how do you see silico and simulation being part of the digital twin is it a, a one-to-one match is it parts of a digital twin how, what is it 
Yeah, and I think I think you know, the first question to ask is, you know, what what is the digital twin of the organization? Yeah, yeah, good. Um, not the marketing and, fluff, please. Yeah, not the marketing <laughs> fluff. So, so I think what that is is that's a, you know, that's a just as a just as in in physical systems, you, you'd have a digital twin of a jet engine, right? So this is this is this is what happens in aerospace today. There's a there's an, a jet engine flying up on a commercial airliner up in the sky, and there's a di- digital twin of that running virtually which is continuously being used to do things like predictive maintenance to work out when that engine's likely to fail. We right. can plan ahead of time, can schedule fixes for it, and we can minimize the impact on you know that, that plane being grounded, right? Because mm-hmm. grounded planes is bad for me if I'm an airline. The digital twin of the organization is the same concept applied to our, our processes in this case, right? So I'm thinking about the digital twin of the organization predominantly through the lens of, of processes. You know, an organization is a set of processes which fit together and work to create outcomes, you know, to create happy customers and to generate revenue. That's what, what organizations do. You would want a digital twin of the organization for the same reason you'd want a digital twin of the organization of a, of a jet. Yeah, engine, right? yeah. You know, can I see when this thing is about to go wrong? Can I preempt some fix that I can make today because I can look ahead and I can see what's happening, happening in these simulations rather than run into that problem in reality where it's really expensive. So, so you can think about, you know, Silica is a tool for building that digital twin of the organization, which is, is the simulation connected and continuously updated with real data from the organization. So it's more than just a picture of the reality, right? It's, it's more than just a BPMN process model or your repository full of hierarchies and end-to-ends and all that stuff. It's what you do with it, correct? Correct. Yeah. So it's a, li- it's a living version. It's that make bringing those things to life and having them move through time. Just as yeah, the and, then, and then do the comparison between what you see in reality and, and what your simulation has predicted. And hopefully there is no difference. Um, but mm. obviously then that you can adjust. That makes sense to me. So thanks for that explanation. Yeah, and I, I think there's also, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, John, but I think there's also a, a tremendous amount of value in also the transparency. You know, there's the, the way in which your company operates is often obscured to even the people who are running the whole company um, and being able to dig into that, emerge out challenges so that they don't have to know everything. It's not like an overwhelming cascade of information, rather that the, the sort of points of, of, of injection to steer the path become clear and that transparency into operations is I feel like that's really the only way to achieve that. Otherwise, you're kind of steering with your eyes closed, and that that seems really scary. <laughs> In, indeed, right. I think you know that 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 to me was always part of the appeal to this is. Decision makers in, in organizations, you know, and on a much smaller scale, I'm a CEO of my, my own organization, right? I, I'm pulling levers continuously with pulling levers around how we spend our, our money or with pulling levers around where we direct our activities. And we don't always have a, a solid, you know, basis, analytical basis for how, why we've pulled those levers or how hard we've pulled those levers. And that's what the digital twin is about. It's, Understanding how and when and, and, and how hard to pull those levers and then being able to explain to the collective that, that, that sits underneath this, the organization as a whole, why you're doing that, what the impact is likely to be and how it's going to feed through across the bits of that system which they work on day to day. Matt, that's great. And, and I do want to loop back, though, on levers because... All of what you're talking about does touch on, I mean, my favorite topic, Roland will know this, it touches on people. And you mentioned the word resourcing in the first section. And I, I want to get this out there. I want us to have the transparency to our audience and for you to, to, to bring your perspective. Talk to me about how human resources, which is one of the levers you can pull on, factor into the concept of simulation, factor into the planning for resolution of challenges. Um, and, you know, let, let's assuage some fears here that simulation and process mining, but specifically simulation is designed to, you know, do rationalization or cutting jobs or layoffs or things like that. Like how does, how do you use simulation rather as a tool to optimize resourcing in a, in a way that gets people to keep their jobs, but focus on what they, what they need to do that's higher value rather than necessarily use it as a, as a specific tool for finding where you can cut everyone out of the process. 
Yeah, and, and I think you know, like like any tool, um, you know, it's it it, it it can be used in different ways, right? The the, the tool right. itself does not have an agenda. Process simulation does not have an agenda. This is used for understanding what decisions you can take to move the organization in the direction that you want to take it in. You know, to, to be clear, in some cases, that might mean increasing resourcing. Well, that's often something that you find when you do the simulation is that you might be under-resourced. There are lots of challenges around there, around the, you know, that we see in, in organizations at the moment where there's there's been an agenda around cutting humans, cutting resources out of processes. But what's not being, what's not clear is the direct impact that has on things that the business cares about. In some cases, for example, you know, that might have a very negative impact on customer satisfaction. It might have a very negative impact on your ability to have sufficient process capacity for an unintended, you know, an unexpected spike in, say, order volume. We, you know, one of our, one of our clients, one of a big European telco, um, actually the, the outcome of their, their digital twin of their process was that when they plugged in their, their commercial forecast, you know, how they thought they were going to try and grow order volume over the next few years, they were massively under-resourced. And actually what the, what the implication was that they needed to hire people at certain points in time to ensure that those orders didn't get missed. You know, they, they were able to deliver the, the, the goods out the door at the end of the day that all this expected order growth was, was going to drive. Um, uh-huh. I don't think this is something that people need to fear. I don't think this is something that's, that's, you know, has a one for one relation to eliminating people from a process or replacing them all with automation. In many cases, it may show either an opportunity to re- optimize given current resources. How do you take those 50 people allocated a pro- process? move them around and drive more throughput for the same amount of resource. And in many cases, it might be new new product, new technology landscape, new commercial landscape. What does that do to resourcing as well? What does that imply for resourcing? Yeah, I actually... I, first and foremost, I love that you said that um, you shouldn't have to fear process simulation because I, I believe very similarly to you about this. I actually really love... One of the components of simulation that I've seen in a lot of organizations I've worked with, which is talking about um, the value of an employee, really building the, the 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 value proposition for each role and understanding its its ability to deliver like you know, quantitatively towards business outcomes. And so now, when you're looking to try and tighten your belt as an organization, I know we're going through a a pretty big financial system reorientation in the world nowadays. I don't know how else to say it. It's there's, there's downturns here and there. There's a lot of people tightening their belts, but the idea of what's creating value for my company becomes a lot clearer and almost all the time it's people, right? The companies are just people and processes and technology enables those people and processes to succeed and understanding what the value creators in your organization is only helps strengthen the use the, the, the use case of, or the value case for, you know, increasing resourcing or dedicating people to things that, that are higher value for their time. In fact, that's one of the things we want to talk about is about, about leading to automation, because the thing that I see with human resources is the, be- the best we can do for people is to make people do the best for organizations, because when you're delivering more value... I argue you feel more empowered. You feel more impactful. That's a better employee experience. Whereas if you're doing low value and repetitive tasks, yeah, maybe you keep your job as you know it, but that isn't fun. That isn't interesting. That doesn't make you feel necessarily like you really move the needle for the company. And we talk about this unbroken chain of influence between employee action and company outcome. With simulation, you can help draw that substantially more, like, ta- like tangibly. You can see one, two, three, four. Here's my KPI, and I did this, and here's how it moved that needle. Um, and I, I, I love that. But let, let's talk about the, how this factors into automation, because obviously you're you're looking to to use simulation as part of transformation initiatives. When you're looking at this, and Particularly, I'm thinking about ERP, or but you can talk about um, RPA. You can talk about all sorts of you know, sort of lower lower um, impact, <laughs> lower lower uh, work effort automations. How do you see simulation factoring into 
the ideation, the honing and, and tailoring of an automation solution for digital transformation initiatives in organizations? Yeah, great question. Look, I think it's it's all about you know two things. One is one is that I think generating the solutions. What are the options? What are the different ways in which we can transform? And then how do I evaluate those and how do I compare them? I might have 50 different ideas for how I could implement RPA or different points in a process where I could bring it in. How do I evaluate which of those are going to be most effective? Equally, if I'm doing, you know, you talk, you talk about ERP, a big project, a bigger transformation project, a fundamental kind of technology re-architecture, there are questions about, you know, how do I customize those, those, those new processes? How do they, how do I drive the most business value? Which like flavor of, of transformation do I want to pursue? Um, and these are, I think at the moment, you know, this, this bit around solution generation and solution evaluation is, it's done very manually that there's lots of consultants doing this. There's lots of PowerPoint presentations. There's lots of quite, you know, loose discussions about kind of industry benchmarks and things like this. What we're trying to do, you know, a way that you can use simulation for, for doing this solution generation, solution evaluation is to, to, to map those new processes out and to work out what the maths is, right? To work out what the, what the impact is going to be on the metric that you, the metrics that you care about. To me, that's the, that's the right and most scientific way of, you know, doing, picking the right way in which to transform the enterprise. And that's not something that I see another technology really doing. It doesn't really fit into that part of the problem. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of people right now focused on processes as they are today and how we're executing today, but not about where should we go? Where should we transition to? Where should we transform to? I agree. And, and I've seen the same, you know, uh, you mentioned it earlier, you know, people want to be in compliance and obviously there's, there's good reasons for it when I look at the current situation of whatever happens in uh, corporations right now, but anyways, uh, but there's not a lot of forward looking, right? Especially not here in America, you know, corporate America, we're living in that super weird time where everybody talks about recession, but unemployment is high. So people can get, or organizations can't get people and, and all that stuff, which, obviously has to do with low wages and, and all these, whatever, mm. right? That's an American problem, right? I hope it's solved elsewhere in the world. And I hope we get to that point at some point in time without, <laughs> without sounding too much like a Marxist, but anyways, um, but long story short, um, I, I agree. People don't look forward, right? And um, I'm really interested in, in your pitch to say, um, how do I help organizations who, a, see the light, you know, that they should focus more than just compliance and more than just this. And, and B, how do you help them getting there, right? Mm -hmm. Because at, at what I noticed in, in my day job is, and I had a couple of clients, to one I actually asked the question. They said like, oh yeah, we bought your software. Now you have to tell us what we can do with it. And, and, and to one client who I really like, I said, <laughs> Really? Really? Why did you buy it in the first place if you don't know what you want? You know, and I think it's a chicken and egg problem that I'm pretty sure you've seen with this newer technology a lot. So two questions. How do you bring people to see the light? And once they mm. saw the light, how do you get them to, to go on that path? Yeah. So, so I think, you know, something to say about, about the business we are as well is that we're a, you know, we're, we're a product company. We're, we're, we're a technology provider. We're, we're a platform. Um, any technology provider, and particularly in B2B in the enterprise, there needs to be people using that technology to deliver value, right? To, to actually turn this into something useful for the business. In our case, we work a lot with um, you know, service partners. So we work with lots of consultants in the space. So mm -hmm. a lot of the work in, say, um, ERP transformation, that would be work done by, you know, work that's traditionally been done by consultants, who deliver ERP transformation projects on behalf of end clients. And they have a, they have a challenge, right? Which is most of the, most of the, you know, the, the point at which the project really takes flight is where the project's been signed off mm -hmm. and actually convincing someone to take that big step to say, you know, move to a new ERP platform. That's a huge project. There's a lot of risk involved. So for those consultants, Silico is a tool that helps them, to achieve that, it helps them to do this piece around 
valuation? What's the impact of where we're going? What's the, can you show the CFO that you have designed the ERP transformation to be the least risky and to be the most impactful for the business? And can you show that there's a positive ROI of doing this transformation project? And that's something that I think people in the transformation space have, have always struggled with. And it's not just in the ERP space and it's not just consultants. This is true for in-house you know, heads of transformation in, in large organizations as well. How do we get someone to sign off on this? What's the, what's the hurdle that we need to clear to convince them that we should take action here? Mm-hmm. And I think it comes back to something we were talking about earlier on, which is you know, hard facts, hard data, hard numbers, really clear explanation of what the value will be quantitatively and why, and why you've evaluated and, and the fact that you've been through a process of evaluating multiple alternatives, and this is why you're making that recommendation. That's just super, that's super powerful, super powerful for anyone trying to do transformation. Absolutely. And of course, if you evaluate the data and it comes back, oh, not so good, you shouldn't do it. This is also gives you the, the negative, like not just, yeah, here's a fantastic idea. No, no. Show me the math. Does it actually provide value? And if it doesn't, we're not going to do it. Yep. And there are, and there are lots of examples where we, where we see this with our clients where a decision which looks, um, looks very obvious. It, it looks like a very clean cut. We, we should absolutely do this. You know, everyone's complaining about this part of the process internally. Uh, that's where we're going to focus our transformation effort. When you simulate it out, when you do it quantitatively, you see, oh, all that does is cause us a problem somewhere else, right? We've just pushed the, we've just pushed the problem <laughs> onto another team. We haven't, we haven't got any more orders through the system quicker. We haven't delivered product to customers quicker. We haven't generated more revenue for the organization. We've just spent a bunch of money moving a problem from one team to another. And I think that's, you, know, you, you tell me your experience, but I think that's probably quite endemic. Or for some people, this is good enough, you know, maybe it's somebody else's problem. <laughs> Hot potato for organizations. Oh boy, if someone's going to get their hands burned. Well, speaking about someone, I have a question for you because, John, you've been talking about this and I know you can't necessarily mention client names, but you've alluded to a couple of really, really powerful client stories that that you've gone through. Things that really started the organization off on the right on the right foot, developed your technology. Can you give us a, um, you know, once again, an anonymized example of where particularly Silico, but like, you know, just in, as a process simulation exercise, mm. you, your technology, your approach really built value for an organization and led to a process transformation initiative that drove a KPI they were looking to change. Yeah, ex- exactly. I can do. Yeah. So, so one of our early customers um, were looking very hard at, at the, um, the customer experience, the customer journey around a particular set of product lines, uh-huh. Um, so they were looking at an order to cash process, um, yeah, a very common process. I'm sure lots of lots of people listening deal with orders orders to cash processes. They had kind of two challenges. One was it was very complex. It touched on multiple systems. It touched on multiple teams. To go all the way from order to cash was was quite a long journey, and actually to go all the way to, to actual cash meant even leaving the world of processes behind. And and and, in, and historically, this had been lots of Excel modeling. And the challenge they were trying to solve was really, how do we optimally change this this order to cash process to drive and to bring revenue forward ultimately, to to drive more revenue and to bring that revenue forward? How do we actually measure that? Because we've got all these initiatives that we're trying to prioritize. And unless we know that, we're, we're not actually able to prioritize them correctly. We're prioritizing them on quite qualitative things. So we built over over a period of time with that organization and, and they built you know some of this themselves as well. We we helped them on that journey. They built this end-to-end digital twin that spanned multiple processes, multiple teams, took that sort of Excel model, brought it, brought it into the simulation as well, first class. And then they had this tool where they were able to do this on the fly in a meeting room, plug in those, all those different transformation initiatives and see what happened. Uh-huh. more powerfully you know to, to the actual kpis this drove when they then plugged in and i alluded to this earlier when they plugged in their real order growth expectations and they tried to simulate through right what if we could grow um you know, i'll make up a number you know we could grow um order volume by 10 percent year on year for the next five years what they saw was 
if they didn't have an understanding of how that order growth related to the process and related to cash, they were going to miss 70 million of revenue of orders that were just going to get stuck in that process. Were they to preemptively ensure that they transformed the process and or allocated more people to it, they would be able to find a glide path to over five years, ensure that all of that 70 million of revenue, you know, hit the P&L, which is what they wanted to. So that's an example where, you know, you're talking about a relatively small software investment driving in conjunction with obviously, you know, building on all that work they'd done to map these processes and all the Excel model that they'd already done. But to get to that real key insight for them and to get to a really impactful set of business decisions they could make and show, you know, again, to this point we talked about earlier, show the executives, right? The C- you know, it's an amount of money that even a, a CFO in a, a global organization cares about. It's, it's not it's not a rounding error to show that you could you could get there through strategic investment in transformation and strategic investment in people. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of organizations just don't do this. You know, they're, they're, and maybe that also might be an American perspective, you know, uh, fewer, less, whatever, let's save money, whatever it is, right? Why should we spend X amount of dollars on on this technology, you know, show me and, and all these things, which is the, the big problem that I see in the, the architecture and process management space, you know, because you, you come with those ideas of, oh, wouldn't it be better if you could do this, you know, and everybody says, yeah, yeah, but I got a business to run, you know, I need to fire 10 people, bye-bye, you know, and and I think this is a the big change that we see with the data-driven approach, right, to say, okay, it's a shift. You see people having the demand for it, and we've seen it how process mining pulled it off. And my question to you is when you look into your uh, future telling crystal ball, you know, where do you see process simulation on that trajectory? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think the analogy to, to process mining is probably a good one. You know, I think process mining is now a relatively mature technology. Um, it's been around 10, 15 years now, at least commercially. Um, and a lot of organizations have been on been on that journey. And you're right, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's been successful commercially because it's driven an additional layer of value and it's made all of this work around processes and, and enterprise architecture more, more data-driven and more in tune with the way decisions are made in organizations more generally. And I think simulation is an extension of that trajectory, right? If I extrapolate out another 10 or 15 years, will this be a third, you know, uh, another another category in this ecosystem? Will people be doing mining still? Absolutely. Will they be doing simulation as well? Absolutely. I think that's the case. I think this is the next logical step beyond process mining. It takes you from all of this process analysis being about today and the past into what happens in the future and therefore what decisions do I need to take today? So if, if we can take people on that journey and, you know, and, we're, and we're pioneering this, if Silico can take people on that journey over the next 10 or 15 years, I think it, it also helps everyone who's in the space, everyone who's been working on business processes and enterprise architecture and process mining, just make that work more strategically relevant for the organization, make it more impactful, you know, have, have pro, a discussion about processes and, and how to improve them, be something that executives of the future really care about. I think there's a small subset of organization where that's true today, but that's something that as a discipline, as a field, we'd want to push further. Wonderful. Well, that's going to leave us the end of the episode, sort of. We're going to take a quick break before we come back with our conclusions. But in the meantime, just think about a couple of questions while we take our musical pause. How might you start or evolve your process simulation practice to better reach your business goals? What information will you bring to the table and what could you use the simulation outcomes for to drive forward a change in your organization? And what's your next step in simulation? We'll take a quick break and come back with our final thoughts and conclusions.
and welcome back. So uh, thanks, dear listeners, for listening to the show. And obviously, we had a wonderful conversation with John Hill from Silico um, about process simulation. Uh, we spoke about what process simulation is, how you approach it, what's the value of process simulation is, hint, hint, um, the data-driven decision-making. And then we made a little switch over to uh, the term digital twin of an organization, uh, which I'm now not a true believer, but a better believer in, in this, you know, that's, I think it's more than marketing and how simulation will uh, continue its trajectory. And after all that, John, obviously the, the urgent question that everybody has is, well, where can I learn more about Silico and where can I learn more and get in contact with, with John Hill? Yeah, I mean, best place to come is come to uh, come to the Silico website. It's silicoai.com. You'll find lots more information on our blog. We've got an academy if you want to learn how to do process simulation as well. You can take our courses and try it. You can try the software as well. We have a community edition you can have a play with as well. And of course, reach out to me by email, by LinkedIn, however you however you like to you like to do these things. And we obviously will put links to all of those things in the show notes so that, uh, dear listeners, while you're driving, you don't have to take notes. You just do this from the convenience of your office a little bit later. And that's a good pitch for the show notes and the website and a thank you. So thank you so much to all of our audience members for sticking around this long, listening into all of the fun things we've talked about over the course of the show. And of course, a huge thank you to John. Oh my goodness. Thank you, John, for coming on in and talking to us about what you do and why you think process simulation and why everyone should think process simulation is an important part of the evidence-based decision-making life cycle. Now, of course, you can go to whatsyourbaseline.com for all the show notes and information or whatsyourbaseline.com slash episode 47 for this specific episode. But until next time, friends, I've been J.M. Erlinson. I've been John Hill. And my name is Roland Volt. And we will see you in the next one. <laughs>